We will be in Ezra chapter 1 this morning. Even in the short time that I have been alive, a mere 33 years, it seems pretty clear to me that no one likes a loser. I mean, whether we're talking about a sports team that never seems to win, whether we're talking about uh, the guy that just can't seem to get ahead at work or whatever it is, for the most part, it seems that people just don't like losers. They are ignored, they are shunned, they are even ridiculed. And frankly, at the point at which we find ourselves this morning at the book of Ezra, this was the very embodiment of Israel. She was, in every sense of the word, a loser. For several months now, we've been tracing the storyline of the Bible. We've seen God's people be the recipient of God's grace, His blessing. And yet we also see them rebel against God to sin and wickedness. And because of their continual uh, sinfulness, God has sent them into exile. More than just breaking His laws, they have committed spiritual adultery and they have worshipped other gods. And after uh, years and years of warnings and grace and patience, Israel failed to repent and so God sent them off into the exile. That is to say, He allowed the nation of Babylon to rise up in power, to invade His own people, the borders of the promised land, and to cart off His people into exile in the land of Babylon. When the other nations would have looked at tiny Israel, swallowed up and defeated by great Babylon, she would have been seen as a loser. They would have said, you know, Israel had a nice run. They had that King David, I think was his name, and they were winning battles and they were keeping their land secure and they seemed like they were even prospering under the hand of their God, but apparently their God wasn't quite as strong as the God of Babylon because now they are no more. They are barely a fading memory in our minds. They were losers. But what the world didn't know was that Babylon was just a tool in the hand of God. You see, Babylon was not a power in and of itself, for in fact because of even its own sins as a pagan nation, the Lord raised up another empire, the Persian Empire under King Cyrus, and he would actually defeat Babylon and bring them to nothing, allowing Persia to become the world power. And in fact, we see that is exactly what has happened by the time the book of Ezra opens. You have exiled Israel now not under the authority of Babylon, but now under the authority of Persia. They have been swept up as the Persians have taken over the Babylon territories. And what we see here is that even in the midst of Israel's plight, God cares for losers. The world may despise them, the world may not have time for them, but God watches over them. Specifically, He cares for His people Israel because He still loved them. Now frankly, I I find that hard to believe. Not that I doubt it's true. I just think if, if I had been so spurned by someone that I loved as much as God loved Israel, and time and time and time again I was slapped in the face when I had done nothing but show them love and grace and mercy, I would have a hard time still loving them. I would have a hard time still setting my affection on them, watching out for them, caring for them. But thankfully I'm not God because that is exactly what He did. In fact, that's exactly what He still does for us today. God did not only not give up with Israel, but He continued to work in His people 
seeking to change them so that they would never commit the same kind of mistakes that they had committed before. And in fact, what we see is him beginning this work of change in the passage we're going to read this morning. So let me encourage you to follow along as we read Ezra chapter 1. We will see the work that God is beginning to do in his people, a work that frankly even extends to us today. Ezra chapter 1, begin at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that were freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mith- Mithradeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of God to us this morning. After years of exile, and as we have seen throughout looking at the prophets, promises that one day God is going to do another work in Israel. He is going to bring renewal to them. Now we finally see those promises beginning to be fulfilled. We see God beginning to do the work of renewing His people. And as we think about the entire book of Ezra through this, through this first chapter, what we see are really three means by which God renews His his people Israel. And in fact, these are the same kinds of means that God continues to use to renew his people today. So let's look at these means that God uses. Let's look at the way in which God seeks to renew his people. The first thing that we see is that God is a God who reveals a providence that determines history. We want to see in this chapter the providence that determines history. If we could somehow have gathered not here uh, on Kiesel Road with this horrible parking situation and driveway that we have going on out here right now. But if we could have somehow have all caught a flight and it would have been very quick and easy, maybe you know, the old Concord or something, but we could have had church inside the British Museum. Now, first of all, that just that would not have ever happened just from the, the British standpoint. But if somehow we could have, the first thing we would have done, despite all of the other uh, things that were there, all the pieces of artwork, all the other historical things, we'd have went right to one piece a piece called the Cyrus Cylinder. 
Now that sounds a little sinister, but it's not. This cylinder is actually an amazing clay artifact that has survived around 2,500 years of history and war and nature that helps us know something about Cyrus and the Persian Empire. Specifically for our purposes, what is most interesting about this Cyrus cylinder is not only that it has survived all this time, but it actually has engraved on it part of the very passage that we just read from the scriptures, a direction that Cyrus gave throughout his empire. The very proclamation that Ezra tells us Cyrus made about sending the Jews back to their homeland is what we find on this cylinder, borne out as historical reality. And what is even more significant, the thing that we have to understand in terms of, of the history of the world is that this decree by Cyrus was a reversal of decades, maybe even centuries of policy of foreign powers going back before him. That is to say, when it came to the treatment of exiles, what he was doing was something entirely new. You see, as with any conquered people, as with any conquered people, Babylon tried to prevent an uprising from those people. I mean, you can imagine it. Babylon goes in war and he takes over the nation of Israel and it wants to, to have their land and its resources and its wealth. The one thing it doesn't want, though, is a revolution, right? They do not want Israel uh, rising up and costing them even more money and manpower and perhaps even a threat to the national security of Babylon itself. So one of the things that Babylon and the Assyrians before them, these major superpowers, what they realized, what they realized is that every people group was held together by a single strand made up of three chords. The people, the land, and their religion. The people, the land, and their religion. And so what Babylon would do would be systematically destrand this cord. They would take apart the people, the land, and the religion. And they did this very specifically with Israel, along with other nations too. But they would go in and they would say, okay, who are your leaders? Let's get the royal family. Let's get the scribes. Let's get your religious leaders. And we are going to, to, to literally uproot them, to carry them off and take them to another part of our country far away from their own homeland. Furthermore, once they are there, we are going to try and, uh, to, to coin a phrase, may not be the right word, but to expatriate them. In other words, make them forget they're Israelites. And we saw this in Daniel, you remember? They said, you're going to eat this kind of food now and you're going to worship these kinds of gods. And part of, that, part of that denationalizing, making them forget where they came from, was to say, at the very least, we want you to add our gods to the gods you worship, if not totally forget your gods and just worship our gods. And in doing this, again, they're hoping to squash rebellion. But all of a sudden, Cyrus comes along. And you've got all this tradition of, this is how you deal with the empire, this is how you deal with exiles, this is how you deal with conquered lands. And Cyrus says, I'm not going to do that anymore. And it's not after years of study. It is in the first year of his reign. Cyrus says, we're done with that. We're going to start sending people back. We're going to let them live in their own land. We're going to let them worship their own gods. And everything's going to be cool. Now, people in his own day may have thought, what in the world is going on? Frankly, historians have disagreed over, because they're just speculating, why in the world Cyrus would have done this? Surely it must have been, it must have been good in his mind to do this, but what was the good that he was thinking? Was it economically easier? Was it politically expedient? Whatever it is, we really don't know, except we do know. We do know. Why? Why do we know? How do we know? Well, hopefully you know why we know, because Ezra just told us 
why Cyrus did this. He says in verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. You see, it was God himself who worked in the mind and the heart of King Cyrus to send his people back to the promised land. He said, I am going to come in and I am going to so move in the heart and mind of Cyrus. He is going to do my will. He's going to send my people back to my land. And in fact, did you notice Cyrus is going to finance all this? He doesn't just say, okay, you're free, go home. He says, you're free, and on your way out, take some goods with you. Whatever the local regional governors and things are, they're, they're going to they're load your carts up with gold and silver, and we're going to give you fresh livestock so you can go back and rebuild your temple, and here's some sacrifices to go with you. You're saying, well, this is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It seems like Cyrus is a great guy, doesn't it? In fact, he says, doesn't he? He says, I'm doing this because of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of heaven. And it almost seems like Israel is, or Cyrus is a believer in the God of Israel. But don't let that fool you. He didn't just let Israel go. He let all kinds of nations go. And whenever he did it, he issued the proclamation in the name of their God. You see, it was all politics to Cyrus. It was all politics. It may have even been fearful religion. I don't want any God against me, so I'm going to do something good in all their names. Whatever it was, it was a shrewd political move. But more than that, we understand in the midst of all these things, even when Cyrus didn't know it, he was a tool in the hand of God. What he was doing was an act of providence according to the very plan of God. And we know this not just from the book of Ezra, but from the totality of the scriptures. Because before Cyrus was ever born, before, before little baby Cyrus was even a twinkle in his mother's eye, about 150 years before he began to reign as king of Persia, the Lord made a prediction and said, I'm going to raise up a man named Cyrus and he is going to fulfill my will for my people. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says, or God says to the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now you can imagine, Isaiah is receiving this. There's nobody named Cyrus. Persia's not in power. People are saying, who in the world is Cyrus? And all of a sudden, one day, there's one of this little kid. And the mom and dad look, and they say, what should we name him? You know, what, 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 should, we name, what should we name this kid? Bob? Larry? Fred? And mom says, I've always been partial to Cyrus. Cyrus it is. And the Cyrus grows up, and he learns the art of war, and he becomes a general. And in fact, he becomes 
the leader of the Persian Empire who conquers the once unconquerable Babylonians. How did he do all this? Was it, was it years of military training? Was it an expertise and wisdom of the things of war? God says, I did this. I did this. When you went against armies, I was there knocking them down. When you came across fortified cities, I am the one who blasted down the doors. I am the one who raised you up in power. Why? So that you could be an instrument for the salvation of my people. I have been working through my sovereign grace. I have been working through my providence so that all people will know there is no God but me. And my people will come to worship me and see my glory again. And then to the prophet Jeremiah, we get even more specific. This is the, the prophecy that, that Ezra specifically refers to, Jeremiah chapter 32. God says, Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. The Lord is saying He is going to work together all things for the good of His people. He will even raise up nations and He will tear them back down all that His people might be freed from their exile to dwell again in the promised land and be the people of God. That is the mighty hand of providence at work. And when you think about that, stop and think about your own life for a second. What do you have going on in your life that you're worried about right now? What do you have going on in your life that you are anxious about? What do you have going on in your life and you're saying, I just don't know what's going to become of this situation. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. And then think about what God did for His people Israel. He, he created, through the mystery of His providence, massive world powers. He brought them up to discipline His people. And then He tore them back down that He may rescue His people through another superpower to bring them back to the land. Frankly, any problem I have or could have pales in comparison to the massive undertaking that God has done just to bring His people back to the promised land. I am one person. He has orchestrated the lives of billions. Surely, surely He is big enough. Surely He is great enough. Surely He is caring enough to take care of anything that I've got going on compared to the massive thing that He has done. This is why we should not just blow through verses, kind of say, yeah, that's nice and that's quaint, but we should allow verses like 1 Peter 5, 7 to lay as a bedrock of our lives. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The God who raises up nations and tears them back down again, He cares for you, His people, dear Christian. Therefore, you can trust in His providence. You can rely on Him and not be anxious about anything. This is one of the means that God uses to renew His people. But secondly, secondly, we also see in Ezra that God is a God who provides power that brings obedience. We see the power that brings obedience obedience. God moved in the heart of Cyrus, but he also moved in the heart of his people. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit had stirred to go and to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now you would think 
You would think if you had been in exile for 70 years, or, or uh, in, in some families more than that, and God suddenly says, hey, you can go back, that you would be jumping at the chance to go back, right? You say, hey, let's go. We're back to the promised land. We're back to the people. Here's the problem. For some Israelites, that wasn't their home anymore. Babylon was their home. I mean, you can imagine if, if God came to some of you, second, third generation from, from some other country and says, time for you to go back home, over back to the other country. You can imagine a student that maybe is here from China, his great-grandparents came over, immigrated here, and he says, go back to China, go back to your homeland. They're going to say, what are you talking about? I mean, I, you know, I've got the iPod, I wear designer jeans, I have a nice job somewhere. I speak English. I don't even know Mandarin or Cantonese or any of the other dialects. What are you talking about? Go home. This is my home. The same was true with Israel. You had some people who remembered Israel, but you had kids, you had grandkids, and Babylon was their home. And yet God is saying, go back. Go back. How did they obey? What motivated them to do that? Again, God tells us through Nehemiah that it was he, he, that was he who was at work in his people. It was his spirit stirring their hearts to go, to leave what was now their home and go back to the land of their inheritance, to go back to the land of Canaan, the land from which they came. Now don't miss the significance of this. Throughout this entire, this entire chapter, there is a singular emphasis. In verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in 5, and in verse 7, everything is focused on going back to the land and rebuilding the temple and restoring the worship of the one true God. But notice, notice, God is the one who has to even first stir up His people and get them motivated to even go back and do that. In fact, as you read the rest of Ezra, what you see is that God didn't just do this once. He did it over and over and over again. Politically, things get messy and the work of the temple stalls out. They get started and just kind of leave it. And God has to raise up two prophets that we'll look at over the next two weeks, Haggai and Zechariah. And they have to say, come on guys, what did God tell you? Rebuild the temple. Let's go and do it. And so they get kind of charged back up again and they have to start doing it. God has to come back in and stir their hearts back up. And then after that, a few chapters later, Cyrus sends Ezra, a, a priest who knew well the law, and he has to go and he has to preach the law to the people, some who have never even heard it before, some that have to be reminded of it. And again, and again, God has to stir them up to not only live in the land, but to live like they are in the land. That is to say, to live according to God's law, to live the way that God calls them to live. In other words, in order for them to be obedient, God has to be at work and power in their life. Now, it's very tempting for us, at least for me, to look back and say, man, why didn't they get it? God was saying, go back to their homeland. God was saying, look what I'm doing. God was re renewing them and rebuilding them. And yet, he had to keep saying, come on, come on, come on. But the reality is, he does the same thing with us today. I mean, in some ways, we're no different. If we're going to obey the Lord, the Lord has to do something in our hearts. He has to be present and at work. In Philippians 2, this is why Paul can say something like this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What is Paul saying to the Christians? He's not saying earn your salvation. No, he says work it out. 
That is to say, you have it, now live in such a way that it's obvious you have it. You say you have trusted in Christ for salvation. That should make a difference in your life. Make it clear that you have been saved by the blood of Christ in the way that you live. But how are you going to live that way? How are you going to work at your salvation? Paul says, work hard in a life of obedience, remembering that if you succeed, it was because God was at work in you. It was because God's power was operating in your life, strengthening you, enabling you to obey the call of your master. That's what we see throughout the book of Ezra, God working in his people to renew them both in the physicality of rebuilding the land, but more importantly, renewing their spiritual life and their devotion to him. And again, that's what God continues to do for his people even today. He is the one who gives spiritual life. He is the one who provides spiritual power. There was a man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon who is known as the Prince of Preachers. I have quoted from him very often. In fact, there is, uh, you know, for a while it was something of a joke that uh, pastors used to borrow almost too heavily from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister in England who lived many years ago. And so there was a little poem that some people would, uh, would recite that would go something like this. There once was a preacher named Spurgey who didn't care much for liturgy. His sermons are fine. I use them as mine along with the rest of the clergy. Now, hopefully that's not true anymore, uh, but it was, it was probably uh, more true than we would like to imagine. And part of the reason why people wanted to pilfer his sermons was because of the great power that God had placed on his ministry. It is not an exaggeration to say from directly, from his writing, from his preaching, from sermons that were not even delivered in the, in the hearing of people in the actual auditorium, but from the printed page, thousands came to Christ. God, even today, his sermons are still printed, his books are still read, and people still get saved through those things. God had his hand on the life of Spurgeon and is still using that to this day. And some of you may, have, may recall having heard me tell the story when one time some college students came. They wanted to, uh, they were in town in London and they, on, on a, a vacation from, their, uh, uh, from, from school and they wanted to hear the famous Charles Spurgeon preach. I mean, here was a man who sometimes 10,000 people would come and show up at one time. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like much today because of the mass of stadiums, auditoriums, and even churches we have, but we're talking about late 1800s London, England. It was a big deal. And so they got there a little early and they're waiting outside the church, waiting for it to open. And who should come along but, but Spurgeon himself? And he sees these, uh, these young college kids and he, and he asks them how they're doing and what's going on. And, he, and they say well, they're there to hear him preach. And he says, well, how would you like a tour of the church? This me- what was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. How would you like a tour of the church before it begins? And they're like, great, you know, lead on. And so uh, probably, as was his custom, he would have lit up a big cigar and, uh, and he takes them through the tour of the church. And he's pointing out the auditorium and all these different things and this great metropolitan tabernacle. And then he looks at them and he says, how would you guys like to see the boiler room? And they're kind of thinking, the boiler room? Who wants to see the boiler room? And I understand, you know, we've got uh, a boiler today, but it's not like it was back then. This was the age of steam. Everything was driven by steam. And for whether it was a a small heating unit in the home to whether it was vast uh, uh, ships that would cross the Atlantic Ocean, boiler rooms were not 
nice places to be. They were, they were functional. They were uh, dirty. Uh, they were the, the driving force of pressure and energy. They, they were hot. It, was not, it wouldn't be the kind of place you'd want to be on a tour when you went to look at a church. And the students were not all that thrilled with seeing the boiler room, but this was Spurgeon. And so they said, sure, show us the boiler room. And so these young men are expecting Spurgeon to open the door and to see gauges and pipes and to feel the blast of uh, the, the heat coming out from the furnace. And instead, when he opens the door, what, he find, what they find and what they see are hundreds of Spurgeon's congregants on their knees, on their faces, calling out to God in prayer for the services and for the sermon that would be preached in the coming hour. They didn't know what to make of all this. What, what did this mean? And Spurgeon, I'm sure, had the twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face because he was very, very clear whenever he would spoke. And they would say, why does God seem to have his hand upon you? He would be the first to say, it's not because I'm that smart. It's not because I'm that spiritual. It's because my people pray for me. They are the boiler room to our ministry. They are the boiler room to my preaching. That is to say, they are the power behind anything and everything that happens. Spurgeon was not saying he was actually that great of a preacher. He said, God was at work. It was his power coming down because of the prayers of his people. Christians, we have to realize that any spiritual life, any success in ministry, any growth in godliness comes only as a re direct result of God's work in our life. This should both humble us when it comes to thinking of our own accomplishments, but it should also encourage us to go over and over and over again to God's throne, pleading for the power that only He can give, a spiritual power that will lead to obedience. God uses His providence and He provides His power to renew His people. But the, the third thing and the final thing that we see in the book of Isaiah about how God renews His people, we see the provision that encourages believers. We see the provision that encourages believers. We see this in verses 7 through 11. And let's be honest, at first glance, this is one of those texts we would probably tend to glance over and not really think, read or think about as we read through the Bible. It would be like some of the genealogies where we kind of get to it, we kind of skim over some names we don't understand and move on reading. Likewise, you have this, this list of, of seemingly pots and pans. What is this all about? Well, if we will take the time to understand these verses, what we will see is, a, is the recounting of something that would have been of the most significance to the people of Israel, perhaps more significant than anything else God had done so far in our text. You say, well, well what, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's one of those things where you either have to have a good study Bible or you have to have done what the people who write the notes for the study Bible have done. You have to have read the Bible. You have to know what the Bible says. Or for your case, if you've been around uh, here visiting or, or a member here for several weeks and you were here for the message on Daniel, then you may remember what happened with King Neb or rather with um, uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and then you will know what's happening here. If you remember in Daniel uh, chapter 4, I believe, Belshazzar is having this great banquet. He's having this feast. He's got all of the royal family there. He's got other leaders. He has his wives and his concubines. Everybody's there. And the dinner's been going on for a while, and he's probably a bit tipsy. And he calls the chief steward, and he says, Hey, he says, do you remember that stuff back in the warehouse in the back? 
That stuff that my father, Nebuchadnezzar, he stole from Israel. Remember all those gold cups and pots and things that he took out of their temple? Why won't you bring that back out so that we can drink out of those things? Now, of course, in the, in the story of Daniel, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and the very hand of God uh, appears out of the air and writes the sentence against King Belshazzar on the wall. Thus, the, the proverbial handwriting on the wall that we get from comes from this scene in Daniel where basically he says, you have, been, you have been measured out, you have been weighed, and you have been found wanting. The kingdom will no longer be yours because of this disgrace. Well, what we have here what we have here are those very instruments. What would have been the final insult to Israel to have the very temple ransacked from all of the gold, all of the instruments that would have been used that had specifically been sanctified. That is to say, the priests could not have uh, you know, uh, uh, taken the fork that they used to draw the meat out of the boiling pot and used for the sacrifice. He could not have wiped that off and taken it home to eat his dinner with. It didn't work that way. All Everything in that temple had been set apart exclusively to be used in the worship of God, and yet now it had been carried off and was just common tableware at a pagan king's meal. And yet now, now, what is happening? Ezra says, a tremendous sign of God's grace to his people. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithdarath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censer, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now what seems like a dull and meaningless list to us was in fact 5,400 acts of grace from God to his people. With each basin, with each bowl, with each utensil, God was saying, I care about you and even the smallest of details. I am with you. I love you. I am with you. And we are going to be together again, God and his people. It was the kind of detail that you find Jesus giving to his disciples when he says, why do you worry about anything? Your heavenly Father knows your needs. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered by him. Even after a sin so great it meant exile from the land, God had not forgotten his people and he was caring for them. And that same God cares for his people today. There are, there are times when God gives us small signs of His grace that He is watching over us and He is caring for us. And too often we want the big signs. And let me just say, don't despise the small ones. I think if you'd have asked an Israelite coming back from Persia whether he, would, he was more happy if he was more happy to be having guys hand him gold and silver and all kinds of things and animals for the sacrifice or whether the simple counting out of the utensils for worship in the temple, which meant more to him, I think he would have said the utensils. It not only demonstrated God's powerful hand of providence yet again, but it said, it said, in all this time I've not forgotten about you. Even in all these 54, can you imagine if you were charged with keeping 5,400 pieces of silverware? After 70 years, there'd probably maybe only be 3,200 or something. We'd be like, well, I'm, I, you know, we cleaned them, we did this, we put them here. I can't find the box. And God says, no, no, that's not me. I know exactly where they all are. I have from the time I let them be carried out. 
and now I'm bringing them back in. And so again, we have to stop and say, with our life, we are tempted to say, well, God, I don't see you do anything. What's all this stuff? You have to understand, sometimes God gives us even the small signs that says, I, I have not forgotten about you. I am still with you, and I love you, and I care about you, and I will never forsake you. But there's more to the text than that even. Perhaps you remember something else that Nebuchadnezzar would have taken away from the temple, something that's not listed here. The Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant was that gold-covered wood chest that served, figuratively speaking, as God's footstool on the earth. It rested in this very center of the temple, in the, in the most holy place. It was above the Ark in the, the gold-molded angels that sit on top. It was above there that God visibly made His glory manifest in the presence of the high priest when He would come in once a year on the Day of Atonement to pour out the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was the very center of Israelite worship. It was the sign that God was among His people. And yet the ark isn't here. The ark is not returned with all of the rest of the utensils. In fact, the ark was never returned again to Israel. The question is, what happened to it? Where did it go? Why, why couldn't God keep track of the ark? I mean, you realize the ark had an original copy of the Ten Commandments in it that was first given to Moses off the mountain. Surely, if God could keep track of 5,400 pots and pans, He could have kept track of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know some of you have seen that well-known documentary about the archaeologist and his friends who found the Ark and kept it safe from the Nazis so they didn't take over the world. But you have to understand, that's just fiction. That didn't really happen, okay? Uh, if you don't know what that is, talk to somebody who's laughing later and, and they'll, they'll fill you in, okay? The reality is the Ark was lost forever. And the question we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God do that? And I think the point, the point is seen in some of the old timers who were still around. We read in Ezra that here you have these old timers and they knew the old temple. They had been at, they had worshipped at the temple that Solomon had built. They would have been youngsters. They would have been there uh, seeing all of the sights and the sounds for the Day of Atonement. They would have saw its glory. You go back and you read, uh, read in, uh, in 1 Kings what that temple looked like. All of the gold and its massive structures and how amazing it was. And they go to lay the foundation for the new temple that they're building. And it says there are so many Israelites who have never been to Israel. They don't know about the temple. They've never hurt you know they've never seen anything and they're just cheering yeah we've got we finally after two years we've got the foundation like this is going to be great and off to the side you have these old men and women and they're just weeping and they're moaning out and they're crying out to god why because ezra says the new glory will not be like the old glory never again will the worship of israel be like it was at its height at its zenith under men like David and Solomon. The new temple will pale in comparison to the old temple. It's, it's this, I think, that helps us understand what God even here is doing in allowing the ark to be lost forever. He is telling His people, Israel, there's no going back to the way it was. There's no going back to the glory days. As, as, as similar as it's going to look, and as great as it's going to be, we're moving forward and it's going to be even better. It's going to be different. It's going to be unexpected. But it'll be more amazing than you can possibly imagine. What God is saying is He is preparing Israel to understand it's not going to be like the old days. 
It may be another 500 years, but I'm going to send that Messiah. He's not going to come like the conquering king you think he's going to come as. He's going to come as a little baby. He's going to offer up his own life and appear to be conquered by death and sin. I will raise him up on the third day and set him as Lord over all things. And he will pour out his spirit on just 120 people at a place called Pentecost. And it's through that operation of the Spirit and through their witness and testimony to Him that you will no longer be the central focus of my saving work. Israel and Jerusalem and the temple will no longer be the focus of my plan of redemption. Instead now, just as I have promised over and over and over again, my light will go to all the Gentiles, to all the nations of the world, that they may all know there is one God and Savior of sinful humanity. And one day, you need to understand, 70 years after the birth of your Savior, my Messiah, my Anointed One, the temple will forever be no more. It will be gone, and that's okay. Because you don't need the temple anymore. You have my son, Jesus Christ. He will be your savior. He will be your meeting place. He will be the very focus of your life of worship and salvation that you have with me. Even here, even here, 500 years before all that or more, God is preparing them. He's preparing them. Get ready. Get ready. In this renewal, it will seem like it's not as great as it once was. But it's going to be so much better. So much better. For centuries, the Roman Empire ruled over the Western world. But in 410 AD, the Visigoths attacked the capital city and Rome itself fell. There was literally panic across an entire continent. People had lived all their lives knowing Rome was always there. Rome would take care of them, would protect them, would provide them. And now Rome was no more. People were frightened. People were uncertain. Even Christians did not know what to do or how to act or respond. And it was because of that tragedy that the early church father, St. Augustine, wrote his most important work called The City of God. And there he reminded the people this, We don't depend on any earthly city. If Rome falls, it falls, and Christians go on. We don't worry about it. Our life may change, our life may be worse, our life may be different, but we don't live for any earthly city, he says. We live for the heavenly city whose foundation is laid by God and will never pass away. And even here you get a hint of that. The very last part, the very last phrase, the last verse of chapter 1, we are told that the people and the objects were moving from Babylon to Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem, from exile, the result and the results of sin, back to their homeland, back to the presence of God Almighty. Likewise today, friends, we are not a part of this world in the way that the rest of the world is. Our life should not be wrapped up and invested in the here and the now, but rather we should see ourselves in the spiritual equivalent of Babylon, knowing we are looking forward to the new Jerusalem. Not any one location in a small patch of land called Palestine, but we are looking for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that will one day come where our lives will forever be hid with Christ himself. That is where we are going. And in the meantime, we need to experience a renewal of spiritual life. Because 
because our tendency is to let things fall apart, is to wear down, is to give up, is to close the book, to stop praying, and to drift. And we need God, just like Israel did, to come in and say, we're not going to keep doing the Christian life like this. I am going to come and I am going to renew you. I'm going to give you spiritual life. I'm going to give you, again, spiritual power so that you can obey me, that you can trust me, that you can worship me. This morning we have seen that God is a God who did that for his people Israel. And it's the same God who desires to do that through his church. Therefore, trusting in his sovereign reign over all the peoples of the earth, looking to the, even the smallest signs of his grace in our life and trusting in his power alone. Let us call out to God Almighty and say, God, renew our hearts. Fit us spiritually, emotionally, physically for ministry. The ministry that you call us to, taking the gospel to the nations, even as you have desired from before the foundation of the world. Father, we are thankful for your word to our lives. We are thankful, God, that you do not leave us uh, to uh, look after ourselves, to be a people who are, who are called to obey you in their own strength. God, help us humbly to trust in you, but God, to do so with confidence, not with wondering, will you answer our prayers, but God, seeing the kind of care that you gave to your people Israel. And so also, God, that much more, how much will you care for your your people, the church of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that all these things would motivate us, God, to, to work out our salvation as Paul says. That is to say, to love you and to worship you and to serve you with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. God, may you receive the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.